But we just <clears throat> sang and prayed that the, the Lord would, that we would evermore be led to Him. And so we are going to encounter Him today in the book of Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me there now. We've been going through the book of Mark in, our, in the last couple of months, and last week we encountered Peter confessing that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, and that is uh, a high point uh, in the book of Mark. It's, uh, it's the climax of the first half of the book of Mark, and today we're entering into the second section of the book of Mark. In the first half of the book of Mark, we had an introductory confession that said Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark is writing to us about. And in the first eight chapters, eight and a half, we should say, uh, he's telling us about who Jesus is. He's this king who has come. Jesus came preaching, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is near. So we have this great king, and our response is to repent and believe. And then in the climax of that, that's exactly what Peter does. He, he repents. He believes that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Now in the second half of the book of Mark, it's telling us what this king, what Jesus has come to do. And he tells us right here at the beginning that he must suffer and die and be mistreated and rejected, but he's going to rise again. And our response to that is, is our text for today. How do we respond to this, this king on a cross? Well, it is to take up our own cross, denying ourselves and following him. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's read verse 34 through verse 1 of chapter 9. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word and write its truth upon our hearts today. You know, the end of the year is coming up and once we get through Christmas, people start talking about uh, New Year's resolutions. And, uh, you know, most New Year's resolutions center around our own physical fitness or health or weight loss. And, you know, we start the year with all these grand visions of what we're going to become in, in, the, in, the, in the months uh, ahead of us, how we're going to cut back and start exercising. And it all sounds great. You know, we can see the picture in our minds, some people even tape a picture 
to the mirror or to their refrigerator and say, this is what I want to look like. And the goal is great. You know, it all sounds so promising. But then we start doing the exercise. The demands to get to that place uh, hit us right square in the face. And hopefully your resolutions last longer than mine do. Usually they last a couple of weeks at best. And then what resolutions? I don't remember any resolutions. And I think I look pretty good as I am. So you, know, you throw it all out the window. Well, today we come to uh, what we've said already, Jesus laying out the demands of discipleship to us. And what are the requirements of someone who would choose to, to go in this way, to, to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of the one Peter calls the Messiah? And basically Jesus tells us two things. Uh, and these are the two things that I want to highlight for us today. Number one, discipleship is demanding. And number two, the soul is significant. And that's our two take-homes today. Let's flesh those out a little bit. Discipleship, first of all, is demanding. Now, we're talking about discipleship in this passage he says, uh, he uses the same word and it's translated in two different ways in this passage. He says, if anyone would come after me, in verse 34, uh, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's follow me and come after me are the same word. If anybody wants to be a follower of Jesus, they have to do a couple of things. And so that's what we're talking about here, being a follower to walk in the steps of Christ, to learn from him and to do the things that he did and to uh, place ourselves under his leadership, under his rule even, uh, to learn from him, to obey him, for him to be our king. As Mark has already pointed out, that he is a great king, a powerful king, a compassionate king in so many different ways. So discipleship, following him. Now, I want you to notice in verse 34 that the call goes out to everyone. It says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would follow me. So the call is not just to the disciples. This is not just a word to people who are disciples. This call goes out to everyone. And the call goes out to everyone here today. Everyone in the earth even. If we want to be a follower of Christ, these are the requirements. He calls the crowd along with the disciples to hear the challenge. This is the response that we're looking at now. This is the response to Jesus that everyone is called to make, not just for some who are more serious than others. It's a blanket statement for everyone to take up to deny themselves, take up the cross. And follow Jesus. Well, in our time, in our day, in our society and culture, we don't like to hear demands. We like to make the demands. You know, if you ever noticed how many of our commercials and advertisements appeal to what we deserve. You deserve a break today. Uh, you should have this. You deserve it. You hear that word over and over if you stop and listen to many of the commercials that you'll see on TV. 
It's all about what you deserve. Very self-centered. And we can treat God that way. We like to be the one who makes demands. And we especially like to make demands of God. I mean, he's powerful. We've seen that. And he's loving, so he ought to do whatever I want. Wouldn't it be great to have a God like that? Sometimes we treat God like Santa Claus. Uh, We just give him a list of what we want and hope he delivers. Think about this. Have you ever informed God of what you deserve? Or been angry at God because you don't think he gave you what you deserve? Or he hasn't blessed you in the way that you thought you should be blessed? Or maybe you thought, you know, God really isn't working for me. This Christianity thing isn't really working for me. Or maybe you've said, God, I'll do this for you, but I won't do that. We pick and choose. I'll go to church on Sunday morning. I'll join the church, but I don't want to go on any other day. I don't want to tithe, and I don't want to share my faith with others. Uh, or give to missions, or to serve anyone else but myself. But this passage here today tells us that one cannot live as, as a disciple of Christ the way many people watch television. We sit in a lounge chair in the old recliner with the remote control in hand, ready to switch the channel whenever anything unpleasant, tedious, or demanding appears on the screen. We, we, we must guard, and that's what Christ is calling us to, to guard against turning God into a commodity for our self-gratification. We talked a bit about this last week. You know, having, coming to God with a personal agenda to say, you know, Lord, here's what I want, and, as, and I'll follow you as long as you give this to me. Well, when we do that, we're proving that it's not really God that we're after. It's something else. It's whatever we're demanding from him. That really becomes the ultimate, ultimate goal for us, not God himself. God wants to be our ultimate goal. He, he wants to have first place in our lives. And he is God, and he will not uh, have a rival. He's a jealous God, he tells us. If you want to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus, he says there's two things that you must do. First of all, you must... Deny yourself, and then second of all, you must take up your cross and follow him. So there's self-denial on one hand and self-sacrifice on the other. These are the demands uh, of being a disciple of Christ. Now let's look at these in turn. Self-denial. The word there means to refuse to give thought to or express concern for self, to disregard, to pay no attention to, to say no to self, to refuse to pay attention to what one's own desire, desires are saying, or to refuse to think about what one just wants for oneself. Now, we need to be clear about this. It's not just denying yourself something. It's denying yourself. It may call us to deny ourselves something, but that's not fundamentally what Jesus is saying here. He's, he's talking about denying the self. One commentator says, It is not the, the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. 
It is the opposite of self-affirmation, of putting value on one's being, one's life, one's position before man or God, of claiming rights and privileges peculiar to one's special position in life, or even of those normally believed to belong to human beings as such. So what he's saying there, it's, it's of laying down what you think your rights and privileges are. It's, it's not appealing to your position, even as a human being. It's saying no to self and yes to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Another commentator says, to deny self in the Bible is not to de- deny things to oneself, but to, n- to deny one's self to yourself. In other words, Christians give up the right of self-determination. And I think that sums it up well. Christians give up the right of self-determinations. Christians give up the right to decide how to live. They live as Christ directs. Sometimes obedience to Christ entails losing friends or money or comfort or even one's physical life. So to lose your life for Christ means being open for that to literally occur. You're giving up the right to determine your course. You're saying, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you can't go your own course. Following me me means you go my course. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're going to follow him, you've got to go on the path that he trod. And that means you have to give up your own path and go wherever he would take you. Self-denial. Now, it's not denying yourself something we just said, nor is it self-hatred. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not hating yourself. Uh, Hating yourself is really being self-centered. If you hate yourself, you're focused on yourself. And you're thinking about yourself and... You're focused on how miserable you are and how you think you are wretched and you hate yourself. It's really a form of, of self-absorption, of being dominated by your own flaws and failures and your own problems. Self-denial, on the other hand, is self-forgetfulness. To deny yourself means you're just not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about Christ and what he wants, and where he's going. And you're not thinking about your own agenda. Self-denial is self-forgetfulness. And it begins with humility, because that really is the, the first step. You have to humble yourself when you come to God. And humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is rather thinking less, uh, less thinking of yourself less. Let me say it again. I messed that up. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not belittling, belittling yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself as much as you usually do. That's humility. I'm not the center of my universe anymore. Someone else is. And humility is the first step in that. See, when you're this way, uh, here's how you know. Self-denial. Uh, self-forgetfulness is a state, a condition where you're never concerned whether or not you're being snubbed by other people or whether everybody's given you the proper respect that's due you or whether everybody's thinking about you at all. 
Self-forgetfulness means that you're not touchy about other people in the way they think about you. And you're not touchy about what you think God should give you or what you deserve from Him. You're just committing yourself to going where He has gone and following after. It takes self-denial. Otherwise, you are naturally going to go on your own path the way that you want to go. You're going to determine what you want. You want to be the captain of the ship. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to get on board my ship, and I'm the captain. You know, I don't like those, those uh, car tags and bumper stickers that says, God is my co-pilot. No, God's the pilot, and you're back in, you're in third class next to the bathroom back in the back. He's, the, he's piloting it. If you're a disciple, you're on his plane, but he's in charge. He's, you're not in the cockpit at all. He's taking you where he wants to go. Self-denial, self-sacrifice. He says, take up the cross. Uh, now, of course, we only know crucifixion in, within Christianity. We know it in the context of what Jesus has done for us. But in that day, it was a form of torture. It was capital punishment. And it was, uh, it was horrible. It was despicable and disgusting. And the person was doomed. And Jesus is saying, that's where I've gone. And if you're going to follow me, you've got to go there as well. It refers to self-sacrifice, even to the point of giving one's life. And that's what Christ is calling us to, to give up our lives for him. That may mean physical suffering. It may not mean physical suffering. It may mean death. It may not mean death. But we're just doing what Jesus, that's what he's calling us to do, to do what he did. Philippians 2, a wonderful passage that, where Paul tells us, don't look at your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Be like Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's where Jesus went. He had every right and position in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He ruled over the universe. Everybody should bow down and worship him, but he didn't hold on to that. This doesn't mean that he emptied himself of being God. No, when he came to earth, that's what we're celebrating this Christmas, that God himself is, is, is become a man. He's fully God and fully human, walking the earth, and yet he's not demanding to be worshipped, per se, like, like the angels in heaven are worshipping him. He's humbling himself. He's taking on human flesh. He's identifying with us so that he might save us. He's not thinking about himself or his position or his rights. He's putting those to the side on our behalf. And he's saying, if you want to follow me, then obviously you're going to have to do the same thing. So stop thinking about your rights and your position and what you deserve and start thinking about me and then others and then Somewhere down the line, you come in. That's what it means, Jesus says, to be a disciple. You know, we use that saying, oh, everybody has their cross to bear. And we usually say it when we're talking about the 
some misery that's in our lives, you know, some difficulty that we have to go through. And it was, uh, everybody has their cross to bear. Well, it, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's not simply dealing with your lot in life. That's just stoicism that people are expressing there. It's actually being willing to join the ranks of the crucified, those who are doomed and despised. As we said before, crucifixion is a cruel, disgusting torture that was to be dreaded. And Jesus, amazingly, calls all of his followers to be willing to go to any length for his cause and his kingdom, to put self aside and to sacrifice that on his behalf. So, discipleship is demanding. If you want to be a follower of Christ, he says, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross, and then you'll be following him. Now, he gives us four rationale for that, and and really you can sum it up by saying, your soul is significant. It's worth it. Your soul is worth it. And it's funny because he's telling us to be disinterested in ourselves in one aspect, to forget ourselves, to deny ourselves, and to sacrifice ourselves. And then he turns around and he says, the reason you should do this is because it's in yourself's best interest. So he's telling us to forget ourselves, and then he's telling us to remember ourselves. So, you know, put yourself in the back seat because that's the best thing that yourself could do. That's the best thing for yourself. So it's a paradox, and he sums it up very nicely in in verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It's all jumbled up. Strange. But as I said before, he gives us four fours, F-O-R-S, four rationales why we should consider denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and following him. Starting in verse 35, whoever would save his four, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Second, 36, four, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Verse 37, number three. Four, what can a man give in return for his soul? And then fourth, verse 38. Four, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All of this is talking about our soul. Now, in the translation that we're reading, uh, it says your life, anyone who would save his life will lose it. But the word for life is the same word for soul. So you could actually translate everywhere it says life and everywhere it says soul as soul or life or yourself, your person, uh, your, your inner who you are in your very heart of hearts the very sum total inside, who you are. That's what your soul is. That's what he's talking about. It's not just your physical life he's talking about. He's talking about everything about your life and the person that you are and your identity as a person. That is the most important thing here. 
And Jesus is appealing to that. And he gives us, first of all, this paradox. And he says, you know, whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In the first clause, saving your life means to try to save yourself by your good works or to try to become happy through living out of self-interests. How many people do that in our day and time? They live, A, to try to save themselves by their good works. Why do they think they're going to go to heaven when they die? Because they're pretty good people. And Jesus is saying no. Or we live out of self-interest. I'm going to do whatever I think is best in my life. And Jesus is saying no. If you would save your life in that way, if you would seek to save your life and to preserve your life in that way, you're going to lose it. It's the wrong way to go about it. But in the second clause, it says, lose your life, which is a positive thing. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Losing your life means to give up your claims to self-determination, to submit to Christ, to give up your claims of righteousness, to repent, and to be willing to do anything, even to die for Christ. And this is called losing your life. Partly because it appears to be suicide to all the you know to the worldly wisdom around us. Why would you do that? The world asks us. Why would you just give up your right to self determination and say I'm going to do whatever Jesus asked me to do? That's crazy, according to the world's wisdom. But to Jesus's wisdom is the only way to actually save yourself, because only Jesus can save you. And really. When you are ruled by your possessions, when, when your life, uh, when you give your soul in exchange for the world, you've lost it. You've lost your soul because it becomes enslaved to something else. And that's what he says in, the, in verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Because that's exactly what will happen. Have you ever asked, you know, ever, ever stopped and thought, do your possessions possess you? Uh, are you driven by the things that you're pursuing in your self-interest? You know, some people are pursuing more money, and, and it drives their entire life. It becomes the, it becomes the engine that, that drives everything, and it enslaves you, and it makes you a workaholic because you can never get enough. Or maybe it is popularity and glory and affirmation from the world it will drive you and you will be enslaved to everyone else's opinion. And you will not be free. You will have sold your soul for something that is, that is not going to save your soul. It will only enslave you and make you miserable. And that's why Jesus says, it is to no profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul. In verse 37, what can a man give in return for his soul? Literally, what's more valuable than your soul? And if you have if you're pursuing the world, you're losing your soul, and that is not worth it. I love this song. It's back in the late 80s, Tracy Chapman, she's a secular singer, but she has this great song, and it's a bit of a song of despair because she doesn't have the answers, I don't think. And, and the name of the song is All That You Have Is Your Soul. And she says, My mama told me, because she says she learned the hard way. She says she wants to spare the children. She says, 
Don't give or sell your soul away because all that you have is your soul. Now, in the song, she, she doesn't listen to her mama. She sells her soul, she says. I thought, I thought I could find a way and beat the system to make a deal and have no debts to pay, to take it all. I, I would take it all. I'd run away for me, myself, first class and first rate. But all that you have is your soul. See, she's figured it out. You know, she pursued worldly things, and it's come to naught. But then at the end, there's this verse of despair, and she says, Here I am. I'm waiting for a better day, a second chance, a, a little luck to come my way, a hope to dream, a hope that I can sleep again and, and wake in the world with a clear conscience and clean hands. Because all that you have is your soul. She's, she's waiting and longing to, to have her soul back and to be cleansed. And she, the song has no answer. I mean, it's a good lesson. All that you have is your soul. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying here. The difference is that Jesus promises us a clean hands and a clear conscience. We can have that. Because he says, if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel's, I love that he includes both of those things. For the sake of Christ and the good news, the good news of salvation through Christ, if you give your life to that, if you embrace the gospel and put yourself aside and say, yes, Lord, I want and I embrace what you've done for me on the cross. I lay down my own righteousness and I give myself to you then that is freedom, and then you will have saved your soul. And then he points us finally to judgment. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There will be a day of accounting, and if we've committed ourselves to Christ to follow him, to his righteousness, to his cause, to his cross, then he will not be ashamed of us, but he will welcome us in because he will have declared us clean, clean hands and a clean conscience. And then he gives a promise in conjunction with that. Yes, there's a judgment today, and if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. But there are some here, and he's talking to his disciples, the ones who were following him at that moment. And he says, there are people here, and they're examples to all of you. They are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt about what he's referring to. Some pe- people think it's the transfiguration, which is the next thing that, will, that is in the book of Mark. It's unlikely, I think, that it's that because he says, you know, before they die, and this is going to happen just days later. Uh, some people think it's talking about Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes with power and and I think that's probably part of it. Uh, some people think it's the resurrection when Christ raises up with power. It's probably the sum total of all that the disciples are going to see in their experience. They're going to see Christ raised from the dead. They're going to see the Holy Spirit fall. They're going to see uh, people saved and the church grow. They're going to see some fantastic things because they have followed Christ. The world is going to be changed. They're going to be called people who've, uh, who have turned the world upside down. These 12 
fishermen, tax collectors, and others. They're going to see these things. And it's true for us as disciples as well. We're going to see even greater things. They're going to see even greater things. We're going to see even greater things because the kingdom of God will come one day in its fullness with power. And all those who are followers of Jesus will enjoy that kingdom forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. C.S. Lewis said, Aim at earth and you get neither earth nor heaven. Aim at heaven and you get both. And that is so true. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. So I want to encourage you today to ask yourself the question or challenge yourself even. How can I deny myself, take up my cross, and be a faithful follower of Jesus? Let's pray together.